Section 81 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Veronica Mead. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Problematic Cases, Part 3. Walton Dwight, Part 3. Second, in regard to the occurrence of the night of Colonel Dwight's death, the only important testimony was that of Mr. Charles A. Hull. According to Mrs. Owen, Mr. W. F. Spaulding and Mrs. Dwight were already in the room of Colonel Dwight when she, Mrs. Owens, entered directly after his death. It is altogether probable that Mr. W. F. Spaulding had intimate acquaintance with the circumstances surrounding the death of Colonel Dwight. The defense could not call him, since, according to their theory of the case, he had guilty knowledge, and if he should testify falsely, they, not being able to cross-examine or contradict their own witness, would be held by his declarations. The failure of the plaintiffs to put either Mr. Spaulding or Mrs. Dwight on the stand naturally excited comment. Mr. Charles A. Hall testified that he had never sat up with Colonel Dwight until the night of his death, that he had been his assignee in bankruptcy, but not intimately acquainted with him, that he had no knowledge or experience in nursing, that no medicines were left with him, and no instructions given him by the physicians on Friday evening, and that Mr. Dwight sent for him the Wednesday preceding the Friday of his, Dwight's, death and had requested him at the interview to sit up with him on Friday night because, in an emergency, he thought I was cool and would not get excited. He also admitted on cross-examination that he had stated before the coroner's jury that Dwight said he wanted him because he would be cool in case anything should happen. Mr. Hall testified that shortly after 10 o'clock, I stationed myself in a chair near the door leading into his bedroom, and this door was partially open, and I sat there. During the time I sat there, at one time the colonel called me, and said his head was feverish, and wished me to saturate a cloth in bay rum, and put it on his head. And I did so. And at another time he called for some water, and I gave him a swallow of water. After that he seemed to sleep, and before, at different times, I thought he was sleeping. But of course it was uncertain, and I did not disturb him. Along about between eleven o'clock and half-past eleven, I heard him gasp for breath, as it seemed to me— and he says, Charlie, and called to me. And I went to his side as quick as I could, and put my hand under his head, and raised his head up, and gave him some brandy. And then I ran across the hall as rapidly as I could to Mrs. Dwight's door, and rapped on it very loud, and went back to the bedside again. And I think I administered brandy a second time then, and I felt of his pulse, and in a short time Mrs. Dwight came out, only partially dressed, and I asked her to touch the bell for Mr. Spaulding, and she did so. In a very short time, Mr. Spaulding came up there, and was followed by Mrs. Owens, Mr. Spaulding's brother, and his family, consisting of his wife and daughter. That about fifteen minutes before he heard the gasping, Colonel Dwight took a biscuit from a stand near the bed and ate it. Also that he, Hall, sat in a chair, so placed in the sitting room that he could see all of Colonel Dwight's movements through the open door. He further stated that Mr. Spaulding pinched Dwight's tongue, leading to the suspicion that it was protruding. The only other evidence at all bearing upon the events now under discussion was that given by James E. Lee, the servant who brought the hot water in which Mrs. Owens and Mr. Hall testified. The hands of Colonel Dwight were soaked after she entered the room. Mr. Lee believed that he saw Colonel Dwight breathing at the rate of about four or five times a minute. 
Before this, however, according to the statements of both Hull and Mrs. Owens, Colonel Dwight was dead. Third, as already stated, the expert testimony in the part of the plaintiffs was limited to a description of the lesions found in the body after death. In regard to these lesions, the cross-examination of doctors Hyde, Burr, Chittenden, and Orton elicited the fact there was very little non-agreement between them and Dr. Swinburne, except in regard to the appearances upon the neck. It was claimed by several, if not all, of these gentlemen that the so-called indentation upon the neck was simply a crease or fold in the skin. But on cross-examination, they all admitted that they had signed at the time of the autopsy, when the body was before them, without comment or protest, an official description of this crease as a heavy indentation extending upwards and backwards from OS hyoids to right around back of neck, and on left side, below the thyroid cartilage, running upwards and backwards at the angle of about 45 degrees. In the manuscript notes of the autopsy, there were certain erasures and interlineations. The testimony as to whether these had been made before or after signing was conflicting, but on other points there was no question as to the authenticity of the notes which bore testimony to the existence of several small ecchymoses of skin of back and shoulders, interior part of right arm, small ecchymosis. In other respects, the description corresponded with that given by Dr. Swinburne in the testimony for the defense, except that the word bloody had been scratched over with a pen, as it occurred in the notes before mucus, speaking in reference to the bronchial tubes, and that, instead of the lungs being said to be emphysematous, they were spoken of as unduly inflated. Testimony was given by Mr. Van Vradenberg, Mr. Aris, the undertaker, and James E. Lee, in regard to the existence of a furrow around the neck shortly after death. Mr. Van Vradenberg testified that his examination of his neck was close and marked, and that he was led to make this examination on account of something that was then stirring in my, his, own mind. The nature of this something was not in evidence, but Mr. Van Vradenberg further stated that it did not lead him to investigate any other part of his, Dwight's person, nor did he examine the feet or hands. Mr. Ares testified that he was the undertaker who prepared Colonel Dwight's body, washing and dressing him, that directly after his death there was no crease or mark as of a rope or otherwise upon his neck. He further testified that the body was placed in an ice box in such a way that the head was forcibly bent forward on the body, the chin resting upon the chest, and the occiput being raised. He gave it as his opinion that the crease or furrow or indentation subsequently found in the neck of Colonel Dwight was produced by the elevation of the head in the ice box and its subsequent restoration to the normal position. Mr. James E. Lee stated that he assisted the undertaker and the crease was not there then. After the plaintiffs had closed the case, the defense recalled their experts and put to them the following hypothetical questions. There was no dispute whatever as to the agreement of the conditions of these questions with the facts of the case as testified to by the medical witnesses for the plaintiffs. In the second question, the testimony of Messrs. Van Vradenberg, Ares, and Lee in regard to the non-existence of the furrow directly after death was omitted. The medical part of the question is taken almost verbatim from the notes of the autopsy, the disputed part of these notes being omitted. Question 1. Assuming that a man of 41 years of age who had previously enjoyed robust health, had been complaining for about three weeks and was found on a Saturday morning in bed, shivering, teeth chattering, surface clammy and cold, with the blood settled under his nails, and so continued from one to two hours, breaking out into a cold sweat, with a feeble, whispering voice, and that this attack passed off without fever, 
that the second Friday after this occurrence, having during the day been up attending to business with his lawyer, and having his beard dressed by a barber, he had left about 10 p.m. by his doctor in such a condition as to create no alarm, that at or about 11 p.m. he spoke pleasantly to his attendant, calling his attention to his manner of eating a biscuit, helping himself to one from a dish near his bed, and chewing it without difficulty that within fifteen minutes the attention of the attendant was called to such man by a gasping voice, and that this man was dead in a few minutes thereafter, that at an autopsy held within fifty-eight hours after death, the liver and the spleen were found to be normal, except congested, the heart nearly empty, and that there was no pigmentation anywhere. Could or could not such a man have died of congestive chill or any other form of malaria fever? The uniform answer to this question by the experts was that, in their opinion, he could not have so died. Question 2. Suppose that a man, after an obscure alleged illness of about five weeks' duration, is on a given day able to be up and transact business with his lawyer and have his beard trimmed, is left by his doctor at 10 p.m. on the same day in such a condition as not to give any cause for alarm, and that at 11 p.m. is talking pleasantly to his attendant and eating a biscuit and in less than half an hour after is dead, and that at the autopsy, made 58 hours after death, the following conditions are revealed. A heavy indentation, extending upwards and backwards from OS hyoids to right around back of neck, and on left side below the thyroid cartilage, running upwards and backwards at an angle of about 45 degrees. Postmortem discoloration of posterior portion of body. Several small ecchymoses of skin of back and shoulders. Anterior part of right arm, small ecchymosis. Thorax, lungs, and heart in natural position, except that the lungs are unduly inflated. About 4 ounces of serum in bottom of left pleural cavity. The same amount in right pleural cavity. Left lung, 1 pound and 3 quarters. Bronchi congested and covered with mucus. Upper lobe congested and edematous. Lower lobe still more congested and edematous. Right lung, 2 pounds. Bronchi congested and coated with mucus. Upper lobe, at the apex, several small fibrous nodules. Rest of upper lobe, congested and edematous. Lower lobe congested and edematous. Heart healthy, weight, 15 ounces. Right ventricle contains a little fluid blood, not over 1 half ounce. Left ventricle contains little fluid blood, not over 1 half ounce. Left auricle contains a little clotted blood. Stomach, at the fundus mucous membrane, softened and partly destroyed by postmortem changes. Pyloric end of stomach, mucous membrane studded with small white spots denoting chronic gastritis. Liver congested more than usual. Normal color and consistence. Kidneys uniformly congested and otherwise healthy. Epiglottis, larynx, and trachea congested and coated with mucus. Inner surface of the dura mater on the left side, chronic hemorrhagic pachymenitis with a small extravasation of blood on the left side over the posterior portion of the parietal and anterior portion of the occipital lobes, pyomater of convexity normal except discoloration over occipital lobes from blood, brain neither congested nor anemic, otherwise healthy, and further that at an inquest held five months after the first autopsy, the indentation on the neck was still distinctly visible. Could or not death have been produced by natural causes?
The answer to this question was given by doctors Porter, Swinburne, Bridges, Sherman, and Wood, who agreed in stating that it could not. To each of these physicians, the further question was put as to what, in their opinion, was the cause of death under the conditions named. All agreed in answering positively that death was produced by strangulation with a rope or cord. The following question was asked in regard to the furrow. Question 3. Assuming that the body of a man, weighing in the neighborhood of 200 pounds, 41 years of age, having a full fleshy neck, about two hours after death is placed upon a board on its back, with the head raised upon a book and two pillows, and left in that position for about nine hours, and then placed in an ice box with its head elevated at an angle of about 45 degrees, and left there for almost 48 hours, and then removed and placed flat on a table. Is it possible that a heavy indentation, commencing near the Adam's apple, and running upward and backward at an angle of about 45 degrees, on either side to within less than two inches of meeting in the rear, could be produced by the changes in position stated? The negative answer which was given by the experts to whom the question was put seems entirely correct. It is difficult to conceive how a fold or crease made by bending the neck should deserve the use of the term heavy indentation to describe it and it is still more inconceivable that a fold or crease should be made in the back of the neck by bending the head forwards, which would necessarily stretch the parts said to be folded. Further, a crease made in the manner described would be most marked in the front of the neck, where the center of the fold would occur, whereas the indentation was not visible at this place. Moreover, the plaintiff's experts stated that the indentation involved the subdermal adipose tissue of the sides of the neck, and it is very hard to understand how a crease made by bending the neck forward for a day or two could do this, and be so deeply impressed as to remain distinctly perceptible after the body had been buried five or six months. In concluding the statement of the case of Colonel Dwight, it remains only to call attention finally to the remarkable agreement that there is in the testimony and to the fact that there was extremely little conflict, practically no conflict at all between the experts, that the sole contradiction of any importance was between Messrs. Van Radenberg, Aris, and Lee on the one hand, and the experts on the other. If the former witnesses were correct in affirming that there was no indentation in the neck directly after death, the theory of strangulation with a cord drops. Although it would still be proved by the internal appearances, that death was caused by mechanical asphyxia, produced in some other way than by a cord. It must be remembered that it is a well-known fact that in suicidal hanging, in which the suspension has been only for a few minutes, the cord mark acquires its color only some hours after death, and then becomes more prominent. That Colonel Dwight was a heavily bearded man, and that his beard might have hid the fresh indentation from an unsuspecting undertaker. If, finally, it is considered that there is an absolute conflict of testimony, Dr. Wood leaves to the judgment of others, the probability of the truth being upon the side of Van Radenberg and the undertaker with his assistant, or on that of Drs. Swinburne, Sherman, and Bridges, who especially testified to the medico-legal facts in the case, and were corroborated in almost every particular by the notes written at the autopsy, and signed by each of the fifteen doctors there present, and also by the evidence of two laymen, Freeman and Hitchcock, as to the appearance of the indentation at the second autopsy. Having thus quoted copiously statements and theories of the medical experts from the lengthy report of Dr. Wood, it remains for the narrator to note that their conclusions were not allowed to pass unchallenged by other medico-legal authorities and by the life underwriters. In some cases, conflicting views amounted to little more than presumption. 
In others, they took shape in positive conviction. Reference has already been made to the belief that Dwight's case was one of substitution, that another body had served a vicarious purpose, and that he had slipped out of a back door and migrated to a warmer latitude. Some of the leading managers of our life insurance companies, feeling assured themselves, plausibly argue to others to this day that soon after Dwight's alleged disappearance, he was seen and recognized in Mexico, and afterward in South America, where he lived for several years and finally died. There were parties who offered to capture and produce Dwight, provided they were liberally rewarded, but their offer was not accepted. The chief difficulty to be overcome by the adherence of the substitution theory is that of finding a body so correspondent in height, weight, measure, and remarkable general appearance as to deceive friends and neighbors who could have had no part nor law in a scheme to defraud insurance companies. Allusion has been made to the failure to question Drs. Orton and Burr, who attended Dwight in his last illness, even after the court had given permission for them to testify. This omission has been a source of lasting regret. With reference to his frequent use, or rather misuse, of fluid extract of glesmium, it is stated that it was originally prescribed to meet malaria indications, and that he was thence led to study its toxic properties and its fatal doses, as well as its remedial applications. Its selection for a suicidal purpose, if the theory of suicide be accepted, was favored by the mistaken notion that the gel semen, the poisonous alkaloid, could not be readily detected by chemical reactions. The characteristic effects of a poisonous dose upon the nervous and muscular systems, upon the vision, and upon the respiration and circulation were noticeable in this case, and if the period of full development was shortened by strangulation by his own hands or those of an attendant, the end would have been as sure without the rope a little later. The pitcher was already broken at the fountain. With regard to the claims against the insurers, it should be noted here that of the 21 companies interested in resisting payment of Dwight's policies, only one case, as we have already remarked, came to a test trial, that of the Germania, but in that case, the final decision of the Court of Appeals in favor of the company was based upon mere technicality, misstatements in the application as to points material to the risk. One by one, the companies compromised until only nine were left. President William A. Brewer, Jr., of the Washington Life Insurance Company, believed it to be for the interest of life insurance to prevent further scandal arising from repeated trials of this case, and when an offer was made by plaintiff's attorneys to settle, by advice of the general counsel of the committee in charge of the matter, Honorable Daniel Magone, Mr. Brewer, paid them $18,000 and received the nine policies surrendered for cancellation. This was the virtual admission that there was no substantial claim it saved the credit of the companies. It was a good bargain in its avoidance of litigation, inasmuch as no one of the companies could have tried its case singly for $2,000. End of section 81.